0: the 2017 Baird Visiting Educational Professorship Lecture. This year's Baird Lecturer is Dr. Benjamin Hampstead, an Associate Professor in Psychiatry, University of Michigan, Staff Neuropsychologist, VA Ann Arbor Healthcare System, and Clinical Core Leader of the NIA-funded Michigan Alzheimer's Disease Core Center. Dr. Hampstead is a licensed psychologist and board-certified clinical neuropsychologist, who specializes in aging and dementia? His research is funded by the National Institutes of Health and Department of Veterans Affairs and examines the neuroanatomical basis of age and disease related cognitive change using structural and functional neuroimaging. Additionally, Dr. Hampstead investigates the neural rehabilitation of cognitive impairment using both cognitive rehabilitation and non invasive electrical brain stimulation. He has authored multiple studies and co edited a book entitled Cognitive Plasticity and Neurological Disorders on these topics. Dr. Hampsten presented non pharmacological treatment of memory impairment in older adults on Monday, November 6, 2017, at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, 120 Eagle Rock Ave, West Orange, New Jersey. This podcast was edited and produced by Joan Banks Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in.
1: Thank you for having me. It's uh, really an honor to be here and especially um, hearing a bit about the Bairds and and the foresight that they had to establish uh, this fund to to allow us to have uh, already this morning some wonderful exchanges um, about similar methods in different populations. And so I'm I'm really looking forward, I know I have a fairly packed schedule today and tomorrow, so I'm really looking forward to, to having more of those conversations. And it's it's funny because, you know, I, at Emory, I came up in a, a PM&R department where really we, you know, focused on traumatic brain injury and stroke and so the traditional rehab populations. But my interest really um, diverged a little bit because I wanted to focus more on normal cognitive aging, in quotes, as well as then neurodegenerative diseases because as I see it, we have... A huge population worldwide, not just within the U.S., but worldwide, everybody's getting older. That's one thing that none of us can avoid, right? So we have to first understand the effects of aging in order to understand the additional effects that are superimposed that neurodegenerative diseases and medical conditions have on our cognitive abilities as we age. And I think understanding is wonderful, but just my personality, i like to do something. And I, I wanted to really then take some of those approaches that, that had developed in traditional populations and apply them um, to these new populations. And so we were just exchanging some um, reflections. And so, you know, the, the first comments that I got back on one of the early grants was, uh, well, why on earth would you want to try this in, in patients with Alzheimer's disease? It's a downward trajectory. They're going to get worse. There's no point. And so I would love to know, now that it's been a, a decade, a little bit over, I'd love to go back to those reviewers and ask them if they still feel the same, knowing that they're, they're getting older and older and their probability <laughs> is going up. So, so I think we've seen a lot of progress. There's still a lot of uh, opportunities and a lot that we don't know. And so I'll, I'll highlight a couple of things, but uh, I have no conflicts of interest. Uh, as John mentioned, a number of different grants. The Department of Veteran Affairs has been very uh, supportive of this research, as well as uh, NIMH, and then a couple of different Alzheimer's centers funded through the NIA that I wanna make sure I acknowledge. So very quick, I know that it's, it's a diverse audience, but I think I can probably skip through a lot of these things, so I included some general overview slides just to make sure that we were all on the same starting page. Then I'll kind of get into the meat of it, where I'll talk a bit about some of the cognitively oriented treatments and and more methodologically based studies um, to help us identify treatment parameters uh, and to understand better what's going on before we can kind of roll those out into uh, more comprehensive trials or treatments. So the first part of that, I'll focus on, again, some of the cognitively oriented treatments. And then I'll I'll tell you a little bit about some of the work that we have going on now with non-invasive brain stimulation and specifically transcranial direct current stimulation. And then if time allows and if uh, everybody's still awake and the coffee is kicked in, I'll run through a case example and I have uh, several others that I could uh, discuss if there's time and interest. So part one, neuroanatomy. Again, I know within the context of this group, I'm sure everybody's pretty much um, comfortable with at least basic neuroanatomy, but I'll just do dil- due diligence and kind of go through. So again, just to remind you that if I give you X-ray vision, the brain is responsible for everything we do. Everybody in this room knows that. And so, again, we have the four different lobes of the brain, frontal, parietal, temporal, occipital. What I'm gonna really focus on and that I'm gonna keep coming back to is this lateral frontal parietal cognitive control network. Okay, now this is affected in TBI, in stroke, white matter connectivity via, in MS. So it's, I think that this, uh, I suspect that many of you are also interested in the same area. But when I think about aging and dementia, medial temporal lobe structures, and especially the hippocampus, which here at the top I've, I've outlined in green here, and you can kind of see, looking through both the head and the brain, about where the, the hippocampus is. Removed a hemisphere to kind of show you where it is. So right about where the ear is, okay? So not a big structure, but we know it's absolutely vital for learning and remembering new information, okay? It's also one of the structures that's affected very early in the course of Alzheimer's disease. And we know that it interacts with this frontal parietal network. And I'll show you some data that support this. And this kind of gives us a nice model to use when in uh, d- developing interventions and then in interpreting our results. So again, looking through the, the work that folks are doing here, and I know that you have your own FMRI or MRI center, so I'm not going to spend much time aside from just saying that. Really when we're looking at fMRI and we're looking at these beautiful images that we get, looking at the ratio of oxygenated to deoxygenated blood and through that we're inferring neuronal activation. So again, just like to have that general um, statement in there. Now, everybody in here has aged and will continue to age. So we know that with normal aging, quote unquote, memory becomes less efficient. Now, this may be tied to specific hippocampal subregions, so dentate gyrus. And so Brickman and and Small had some nice uh, works that looked at at regional hippocampal dysfunction. And dentate gyrus is interesting because that's one of the uh, two areas in the brain where neurogenesis has been documented to occur throughout the lifespan. And so this may... uh, give some biologic plausibility to why memory changes, that fewer neurons are being born or retained, and so that may underscore why our memory changes, becomes less efficient with age. But we also know that older adults are less likely to use strategies that anyone, if they employ, will benefit from. So we know that that tends to drop off with age. We This has been mirrored in um, using uh, activation, grossly speaking, whether it's fMRI or PET studies, where multiple approaches have showed this posterior to anterior shift with aging. And Kabazan and colleagues did a a number of studies in the the early to uh, mid-2000s showing this, that really we see this increased activation within the prefrontal cortex with normal aging. And there's some evidence that there's increased connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus that many people um, in, in multiple um, theories have posited to be compensatory in nature, that it helps older adults maximize their functioning as long as possible. Okay. Now when we think about Alzheimer's disease, there's a key difference. And again, I, I know I'm speaking to many clinicians and researchers, and, um, so, but, but I do wanna hit on this key difference where when we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, it's characterized by beta amyloid and neurofibrillary tau depositions within the brain. So the disease now, it's becoming more and more evident, is there for decades before the clinical phenotype of dementia occurs. Right, so if we think about dementia, we have to have cognitive impairment and functional impairment. And that's the criteria for dementia. Based on the overall presentation, we can then assign what we think is the likely etiology. Okay? So when we're talking about dementia, it's the clinical phenotype. When we're talking about the disease, it's the actual disease processes, the beta amyloid and the tau that's accumulating in the brain that's then manifesting as this clinical phenotype. And so I point this out because even in our own work, we, we really haven't done a good job of getting these biomarkers, which in all fairness have only become... Um, widely available in the last five, six years. So I can tell you a little bit more about some of the work that we have, Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, going forward, uh, assuming that the NIH looks favorably upon it, but where we are going to be integrating the the newer biomarkers and helping to characterize the patients that we're enrolling. I'm gonna talk a lot about mild cognitive impairments, and again, I assume that many of you know, but just, again, so we're all on the same page, MCI, due to Alzheimer's disease is really meant as this transitional stage between normal aging, where the person is cognitively asymptomatic, functionally asymptomatic, they're functioning well in their everyday life, and this more advanced stage where even this slide you can see uh, from 2004 where it said Alzheimer's disease, as I just mentioned, that should be Alzheimer's dementia. So it's a transitional phase where cognitive symptoms start to emerge. Patients start to develop mild to moderate deficits in areas especially related to learning and memory but also possibly language possibly executive functioning and so we can have amnestic and non-amnestic mci and so all of the and the amnestic profile are the ones who are much more likely to progress to alzheimer's dementia and have alzheimer's disease present in the brain So all of the data I'll show you are patients who have been diagnosed with amnestic MCI. And so they're on a trajectory to where we believe that they do have Alzheimer's disease pathology in the brain. And they will ultimately um, are at substantially increased risk of developing Alzheimer's type dementia. So as I mentioned, we know that the medial temporal lobe structures, and especially the hippocampus, are affected early in the disease course. And this goes all the way back to 1997 with Cliff Jack and colleagues up at Mayo doing manual tracings of medial temporal lobe structures where it looks like here we have uh, entorhinal or parahippocampal gyrus and hippocampus in a cognitively intact older adult and an individual with Alzheimer's disease. And you can see the, the significant atrophy here in the patient with AD. Again, this is one of the areas that's affected early in the disease course and that is presumably one of the, the leading reasons why we have this cognitive phenotype of memory impairment. Now, as we were just talking about in, in breakfast, um, traditional rehab populations, right, we have this sudden decline due to an insult, whether it's a, a vascular event or a TBI. Something happens that dramatically alters their, in this case, a cognition or specifically memory. But we expect some degree of spontaneous recovery over time where when you then intervene and provide cognitive intervention or physical therapy or, or whatever intervention it is, you're working with an upward trajectory where it may not ever get back to baseline, but you know they're, they're unlikely to get worse absent a second event. Whereas then when we think about Alzheimer's disease, as I alluded to earlier, we have, and other neurodegenerative diseases, we have this kind of progressive course where we expect them to decline over time and we know the disease is gonna continue on. So the question is, when, we, when do we intervene and then how do we intervene? So if we intervene earlier, we may help them uh, maintain or potentially even improve mildly impaired areas. And we're gonna be working with more cognitive and neural resources in these individuals, right? Because the disease presumably is not as advanced. Whereas when we focus more on late stage, we may wanna then change our target and help them function better with specific tasks or abilities in their everyday life. And so a good example, a lot of the patients that we see will then be at a point where that now they're starting to manifest functional impairment, the care needs are increasing, and the family is trying to figure out whether to bring caregivers in or to, to transition to an assisted living facility. But if we think about that, those are two very disorienting changes in the patient's everyday life, right? So now there could be somebody brand new introduced into their home environment where they've lived for, say, 20 years, and suddenly there's this new person that can be very disorienting and very um, uh, concerning for a lot of patients. So imagine a new face shows up, and you have no memory of that face, and this person is just wandering around your house. That can be very Um, concerning for patients and and you can then have behavioral uh, consequences. Likewise, you transition the person into a new living environment. All of that implicit memory that they've developed over the past 20 years or however long in their own home, now they're in a brand new environment and that's that's very disorienting and very disconcerting. And so then you can also get um, some behavioral uh, symptoms emerging. And so here what we may want to do is help people do something as simple and specific as getting familiar with their environment, getting familiar with the new caregivers who are being introduced, um, to help, again, um, reduce those behavioral consequences and, and help maximize their functioning. And, and obviously, we're gonna have fewer cognitive and neural resources. The diseases are, are more advanced at this stage. So the tricky thing is that identifying people early is very challenging. And then this transition point, when do we still say they have MCI versus when have they converted to dementia? V- widely varies, and so it depends. So some children, for example, um, will come in and say, oh no, no, mom and dad are just fine. They're doing everything on their own. The spouse or a caregiver says, no, they're not. They're, they're burning food, they don't eat, they're not dressing, I have to help bathe them. And so depending on whose report, we could say, yeah, okay, well the person is doing well based on the kids and so they have MCI, but based on the caregiver, things are, are more advanced and so they do tip over to dementia. And so I think that's one of the challenges is in, in the work that we're doing with MCI, we're getting people here, here, and then we're getting people right at this cusp where you know, we're kind of scratching our heads a bit about whether they're the same um, and, or whether they're going to increase that heterogeneity. And I think my approach has really been to take all comers because I want that variability so I can then predict, try and predict what treatments are most beneficial for a given individual. And if I restrict it all to just early course, we're going to get a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, worried well, perhaps. Um, and we may have a limited range to really evaluate um, uh, intervention across the whole spectrum. So part one, again, just keep in mind that lateral frontal parietal network and the medial temporal lobes, especially the hippocampus. Obviously, gonna show you a lot with fMRI data. And then memory changes with aging and then further in Alzheimer's disease, which affect that lateral frontal parietal and medial temporal network. So those are the big take homes from this first kind of overview. So now I'm going to transition more into um, interventions, and so I know that many of you are doing work in this area, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, aside from um, just recognizing some of the ambiguity in the literature about what do we call it? So is it cognitive training, meaning guided practice on a set of tasks within a specific domain, whether it's memory, attention, working memory? Is it cognitive remediation, which targets impaired abilities? But note, one of my pet peeves is that in the literature, in studies that say they're doing cognitive remediation, they're not requiring individual patients to demonstrate impairment. They're using a clinical presentation, um, so for example, say MCI, but they're not ensuring that each patient meets some level of impairment. So there's nothing to to remediate. If there's no deficit, you can't remediate. And so then they're relying on group-based population statistics in um, justifying their, their population. And so that may explain some of the variability in treatment response that we're seeing in the literature. And then cognitive rehabilitation, if we step back to uh, Prigatano and Wilson and um, Linda Clare is doing some great work in the UK with cognitive rehabilitation, which, again, many of you know is really more individualized more ecologically oriented. What problems are the patients having in everyday life and how can we modify those? And it ultimately doesn't matter what, how we get there, as long as we get there and as long as they function better, we don't really care as much about what methods we use. The end result is that it, um, improvement. So in some ways, I've tried to, to kind of merge all of these different areas and so that makes classifying The work that we're doing a little bit tricky, and you'll get a sense of that in a minute. But this comes from a review we did a few years ago um, in gins, where we kind of looked at in MCI patients. It was a very methodologically based review, where we tackled things like there's no dose response information. We tend to use sessions, um, which what occurs in a session with me may be very different than a session with you or any of our patients. Some patients are going to need more support, and so that that what occurs in that session is not at all the same. And so we've adopted a very trial-oriented approach where we can specifically know how much each individual gets. And that extends or contracts the length of each individual session. But at the end of the day, I know exactly how much I gave to each individual who came into my studies. And so what we tried to do was group these different approaches based on, grossly speaking, cognitive mechanism of action right, where we have these rehearsal-based approaches, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Again, the idea, practice makes perfect, and we give a task or stimuli, and and we want them to practice, practice, practice in order to strengthen those abilities. We can then get into compensatory approaches, and, and these external aids, calendars, notebooks, lists, smartphones, so on, that all of us benefit from. I mean, I'm dependent on my phone and my calendar to keep my head head on straight. So we know that it works, assuming I'm relatively cognitively intact, but we know that these work in all sorts of patient populations. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Where we've also then spent a lot of time is on these internal approaches, which I'll refer to grossly as mnemonic strategies. And I'll give you some examples of that. But they involve things like semantic organization and elaboration, mental imagery, which I know you guys are doing a lot of. Um, including method of loci training, which goes all the way back to antiquity. Um, So these different approaches, my belief is that they matter and that we can't just take a one-size-fits-all. And so that the individual differences in disease severity may dictate which approach we have, and I'll show you some examples of that in a couple of minutes here. So kind of going back to more of the cognitive rehabilitation literature and and wanting to tackle problems people are having in their everyday life. So for the first few years um, in kind of junior faculty life, I decided to, to step back and tackle some of these issues that patients are having. So remembering faces and names, remembering objects and locations, and then spatial information, navigating from one environment to the next. So we've developed fMRI paradigms and behavioral paradigms that allow us to to use these as models to understand where the problems are emerging and then to try and target those um, problems and to hopefully then result in in improvement in everyday functioning. So the first part of the talk here, I'm going to focus on this object location paradigm. Again, object locations are interesting. Um, they go back to kind of Michigan and Underleaguer, the, the what and where pathway, which then Posthum a few years ago and, some, and colleagues had a nice review of object location memory. And so what they did was build on that, that initial work from Michigan and Underleaguer with the ventral and dorsal visual pathways, but they extended it and made it a little more specific to where we know these ventral visual streams are important for object identification. So if I show you this, you know it's, an, it's a bottle, and so you just activated this visual stream, this processing network. We know that the where pathway here kind of comes up through the parietal cortex, gives us the spatial information. But what Posthum and colleagues also posited was that really this is that lateral frontal parietal network that I mentioned earlier that allows us to hold these pieces of information in mind. Right, so we have to know what it is and where it is. And we have to hold those in mind until they're bound by the hippocampus and medial temporal lobe structures into a memory. So if we think about MCI again, we could have deficits anywhere or any combination of these different approaches. And so what we wanted to do is again, understand this. And so we developed that object location paradigm where the, some of the data I'll show you come from a slow event related design where we had, we showed individuals an object and then the location of the object within a, a real, not realistic enough looking room. Um, so I'm no interior designer and some of my trainees after have come along and made these rooms look far more cozy and, and comfortable. But it gives you the idea that, for example, the measuring cups are in a kitchen cabinet. The keys are over in the corner of a living room. And so then we wanted to test that posture and, and colleagues model. So what we did was had participants do the object location paradigm. And this is from healthy young individuals. We gave them that object location paradigm and we gave them a classic end-back working memory um, task. And so the first question was, we isolated those sections of each trial that just showed the object. And sure enough, we see that ventral visual stream really lighting up, right? We then looked at just the portions of object in location where we now have the spatial processing and that working memory as well as then presumably the binding occurring. And sure enough, we see that ventral visual stream really lit up now, as well as that frontal parietal and these medial temporal regions. So that gives us some support for the underlying model, but what we also did was then looked at that working memory. So the two back greater than zero, so this classic working memory, and we see a lot of of frontal parietal activation. So exactly what I wanted, Exactly. I would have been very concerned if we hadn't seen this. But what you'll notice is there's nothing in the ventral visual stream and nothing medial temporal. Okay. So we're starting to dissociate. So we then did a conjunction analysis between the object in location phase and the working memory. And in fact, we did see that this shared network involved in working memory was active only in the object location phase. And here just a, a smattering of ROIs that we took from um, the right hemisphere, less, left hemisphere were identical, more or less, where with the lateral occipital complex involved in um, object identification, you can see it's there in the object, it's even more active in object in location, but it's actually suppressed in the working memory condition. Whereas then if we look at, uh, say, hippocampus, that's only showing positive going bold in the object in location phase supporting that role of binding whereas it's actually negative going bold so suppressed um, in the object perception and the working memory whereas then when we look at that lateral frontal parietal network the middle frontal gyrus and the interparietal sulcus now we're seeing object in location as well as working memory so we got this nice dissociation in the role that these networks are playing and so then we can ask the question of, okay, what happens in MCI patients relative to cognitively intact older adults? And so, not surprisingly, we show bilateral hippocampal reduction in MCI patients, right? So again, not surprising. We expect this area to be dysfunctional in those with MCI. It's characteristic. I would have, again, gotten worried had we not seen this. But what we also saw was this lateral frontal parietal network, healthy controls, showed significantly more activation in these areas relative to the MCI patients. We then did some Granger causality analysis, which um, allows us to infer effective connectivity, so directional connectivity and how these brain regions are communicating. And so we extracted a, a series of areas that were active during both encoding and retrieval in both cognitively intact older adults and MCI patients. So, All these areas are active, all of them are represented during each of the phases of memory, as well as in both patient or participant groups. So we were comparing apples to apples. My colleague, Gopi Deshpande, who has kind of pioneered this work, then submitted them to his analysis pipeline, and lo and behold, we see very different patterns of effective connectivity. And what I'm showing you are intra-hemispheric connectivity where the the take-home message here, you can see that there are three points here from which a lot of different lines are emanating. Now this is the healthy older adults during encoding. And so these areas are all part of this lateral frontal parietal network. Whereas the MCI patients, you can see there's one primary area that's emanating. It's on the other side of the figure. And so these were all left hemisphere frontal parietal areas. This was the right frontal eye fields, which we know are involved in attentional saccades. So patients were more relying on kind of their basic visual perception, visual attention in performing this task where it then really looks like healthy controls are relying more on this top-down executive network to help enhance their performance or to drive their performance. I won't touch too much on the retrieval data aside to say that here the hippocampus was a huge driver for healthy older adults, that completely dropped out but thinking about some of the the compensatory mechanisms that may be at play, we saw that this anterior thalamic nuclei, which are part of the same system, going back to Pepez and Dele Brion, this area seems to have, uh, anterior thalamic nuclei, seem to have come on board as the hippocampus has dropped off, and so now they're picking up more of the slack, trying to enhance uh, memory or optimize memory in these patients. So that's a point that we can come back to um, later if there's interest, but going back to this lateral frontal um, issues, uh, differences, the critical question becomes, what can we do? So I'll show you some data that are still in progress. Um, The paper is still in progress, the data are all done. I just have to get it off my virtual desk. Um, In which we randomized 58 patients with MCI to either mnemonic strategy training or a spaced retrieval training, and again I'll give you more details in a second. You can see that the vast majority of people in each group had usable MRI data, or fMRI data. And the results that I'll show you, again I'll I'll go fairly quickly through some of the previous studies, but we've had four different studies, three of them single-blind RCTs. I have a student down in Sao Paulo who adapted these methods and sees very similar results. And so we're replicating these results across paradigms across populations and now even across countries. So the first question was, okay, if we think about object locations, will strategy training, which should increase top-down control, enhance and be more effective than spaced retrieval training? And then, do the techniques engage different cognitive processes as reflected by different patterns of bold signal activation? So are we able to systematically target Um, particular brain areas based on the the intervention and so what we did here um, again this just kind of goes back and shows you where we had the mnemonic strategies versus the um, space retrieval training we had participants come in they completed five sessions within a two-week period of time the first session and the fifth session we had them over in the scanner during both encoding and then later during uh, memory retrieval. So there's a one-hour delay between these sessions. And so these are our evaluation periods. In between, as I mentioned, patients came in, spent three sessions with us, going through um, and learning stimuli either using mnemonic strategies or spaced retrieval. As I mentioned, we took a very trial-oriented approach where everybody got hundreds of trials, exact same number of trials um, for each participant and for each group. So everything was very tightly matched between the two interventions. Now, the strategies that we use, and I've included a couple of examples where it's the same three-step process. Because one of the things that I had noticed in reviewing the literature was we have all these different strategies. And so some more comprehensive programs will teach people multiple different strategies depending on the type of information they're being faced with. And on the one hand, that's great. But on the other hand, that's very challenging because we're asking a cognitively impaired individual to, on, in response to ongoing stimuli, actively search and select particular strategies to try and implement. And that, I was worried, was gonna be a little overwhelming. So we tried to, to simplify and keep the same three-step process. Where the first, select a salient feature. So in the case of faces, it's something about the face that really stands out. So in this case we said it's the smooth skin. We then have them develop a a reason. Doesn't have to be complex but it does that job of binding the feature with the targeted information whether that targeted information is the name or the location of the objects. So in this case for example taking the face name example it would be that she has smooth clear skin like she had a facial and then we can use a little bit of alliteration or rhyming where we call her facial Rachel. Same thing with object locations. In this case, the feature would be the sinks. The reason is that they wanted to take their their ring off while washing their hands so that it wouldn't fall down the drain. We then encourage them to create a mental image. Now that's the part that that for us is very difficult to measure. Um, And so we have some data that I'll actually be interested in going back and looking at based on some of the work that you all are doing with mental imagery. Because we had patients then rate the quality of their image subjectively and so it'll be interesting because we know MCI and Alzheimer's disease have substantial problems with mental imagery and that may reflect some of the the early deposition of uh, amyloid and tau within some of the, the brain areas that, that seem to be responsible for that so that'll be interesting to look at. so patients went through and learned a series of stimuli and then on each subsequent trial we would show them the object and then we'd show them an empty room and we'd say where was the object? And so people would say oh it was between the sinks. And we'd say stop, tell us the feature, tell us the reason, and then you can tell us where it was. And in that way we wanted to change how they're processing the information. And so that's why we gave hundreds of trials. And so we had a lot of patients that would say oh the, the ring is between the sinks. And again we'd make them stop and reinforce that rigid process because that's obviously one of the things that they're not doing well. And so one of the questions when we first started this study, again, reviewers were very um, dubious about whether or not patients could even learn to do this. And in fact, we measured that. And we saw that patients were in fact able to independently develop their own cues, I don't show it here, but on over three quarters of the trials. So patients, once they got the hang of it, they, we could show them a stimuli and they were able to develop reasonable cues. They were then able to retain these cues at over 90%. And so you can see across all trials during those three training sessions, patients were somewhere around 95% accurate. So very effective in the short term. Now our active control was the spaced retrieval training. Again, tightly matched with uh, number of trials, the duration and the overall patient experience, subjective report at the end of the study. So wonderful um, control condition. And so we had them remember the location of an object over progressively longer delays that started at zero seconds and went all the way up to 128. So they're sitting there for just over two minutes on the last trial remembering the location of this object. And this was very, very effective for us because on average, again, we're 95% or so correct across the different delay periods. So extremely effective in the short term, right? Well then we send them home and there's always two days between the final training session and our our um, post-MRI outcome measurement. And what we see was that there was no difference at baseline between the groups. So our randomization worked wonderfully. But in that, just with the two-day delay, we see performance in this group go from 90% down to what? Just over 60? And now there's a huge effect size, a large effect size difference, where our strategy group lost about, what, 10 or 15%? but they're still doing pretty darn well. We then send them home, bring them back a month later, and had them repeat the behavioral measures. Again, we see a large effect size, and both groups showed decline. We expect that. It's memory impaired patients who learned, frankly, meaningless stimuli, but there was still a big effect size where the strategy group performed significantly better than baseline, even after a month of not seeing these things, whereas performance had regressed in the space retrieval group to be no different than baseline. So pretty promising. So then when we turn to the fMRI data, what I'm gonna show you are, so we had both trained stimuli that they learned during the sessions and novel stimuli that they had never seen before. And this gives us a sense of where were the patients able to generalize what they were doing. And so the bold signals is wonderfully sensitive to that. And so I'll show you um, post-training greater than pre-training for novel stimuli. And in the spaced retrieval group, you see these cooler colors, which I'm sure many of you know, suggest that we actually showed reduced activation in these areas after training compared to before. And you may be scratching your head a bit because performance got better, but bold signal went down. And I think this is really um, consistent with re- the repetition suppression effects, that the more times your brain does something, so the more times I ask you to tell me what this is, the more efficient your brain is processing. And so the fewer neural resources you need to engage in order to accomplish that same behavioral result. And so this suggests that patients were processing information more efficiently. Now, when we look at the strategy train group, we see a different pattern where we see some of this repetition suppression in some of the same areas, okay? But we're also now showing increased activation in retrosplenial cortex, in kind of rostral frontal cortex, which is very specific to the strategy training group. So we're seeing a slight uptick in bold signal here, but we're seeing that suppression in the space retrieval group. Now these areas are involved in uh, self-referential processing and uh, again, some of the mental imagery, and we know these are some of the areas that are, are time and time and time again, whether it's task, whether it's resting state, these areas are dysfunctional in MCI patients. And so across a series of studies now, we've shown that these same general areas show increased activation following strategy training. And if we return to our lateral frontal friend, we see the, the same pattern where increased bold signal regardless of trained or novel stimuli in the strategy group but suppressed activation in the spaced retrieval group. Okay. So again, this suggests that patients were in fact, that with the mnemonic strategies, they were in fact able to engage these top-down cognitive control mechanisms that they didn't seem to be doing at baseline and that it may have enhanced the self-referential processing, which we know can enhance um, memory formation and retention. So we've replicated that. Again, this was just an earlier study with uh, matched exposure training. Again, we see the same benefits of strategies. We then did it in healthy older adults where we used a subtracting cues training and, again, saw significant benefits um, in strategy-trained patients compared to um, subtracting cue. And same general patterns of bold signal where we're seeing huge increases in lateral frontal parietal, um, but then some repetition suppression and spaced retrieval, or in subtracting cue training. The MCI patients, so I showed you that lateral frontal increase, they're also showing increased activation within the left head and body of the hippocampus. Again, areas that we knew were dysfunctional at baseline that we know are dysfunctional as part of the disease, and that now we're seeing show increased activation. And again, it's very specific to the strategy-trained group. And better yet, we replicated our earlier findings with a smaller sample using the same general methods. So across studies, we're showing that these strategies can result in a partially restorative um, pattern of activation in disease-relevant areas. I won't go into too much detail, but this was a paper that, that kind of splashed, uh, made some splashes earlier uh, in the year with Dressler and colleagues who um, looked at memory athletes relative to controls, and so they provided this super span learning of 72 items, and these memory athletes who, who have trained themselves to um, use strategies to try and remember this got about 98% of these stimuli correct, so 72 items, 98%, that's, that's pretty good. And then they had a matched group of healthy young adults who were performing at about 55% correct. And so they looked at differences in connectivity between the memory athletes and the the controls, and you could, again, see this increased connectivity between different frontal regions and medial temporal regions. And then they took healthy young individuals and they randomized them to either a method of loci training, which they did for multiple six weeks, or one of two control conditions. There was an active control and a, a, just a, a weak, um, no treatment control group. And they then, after six weeks, again, gave them a similar task or the same task. And you can see that the strategy training substantially improved memory. And these patients, or these healthy young individuals performed significantly better than baseline even four months later. And when they looked at patterns of connectivity, the, the, those who received the strategy training were more similar to the memory athletes and it was reflected by increased prefrontal and medial temporal uh, connectivity. So again, multiple individuals replicating um, these, these same general findings. Okay, so I know that the temperature kicked up in here a little bit. Everybody's a little bit warm, a little bit tired. So the nice part is that I'm about two thirds of the way done. So, so bear with me here. But I think that you know what these data have hopefully shown is that we can use these strategies to increase the depth of processing and that we're able to re-engage these brain areas that seem to fall off during the course of MCI and that that's manifest then in, in increased memory test performance. Okay, so I'm gonna transition here and we're gonna go through some TDCS work now. So people familiar with TDCS? okay. So I'll, I'll go through and give you a little more information. So, non-invasive brain stimulation—general term for um, methods that use magnetic fields or electric current to try and modulate brain functioning. It's not electroconvulsive therapy, and I have to emphasize this point everywhere I go because people hear that we're going to be putting electricity into their heads, and people get very concerned, and they have, you know, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest type of uh, <laughs> imagery occurring. Huge differences. So ECT uses 700 to 900 milliamps. Typically, the field has stayed under two milliamps. We're doing some with three and even four milliamps now. Um, but it's so it's, it's so dramatically different. That's the first point that I try and emphasize. The second is that ECT to have a clinical benefit has to induce a seizure. That is the last thing on earth I want to do. Okay. So we do not want seizure activity. And so there are several types, TMS, TDCS, TACS, RNS, pulsed ultrasound. So a lot of different approaches out there. I'm gonna focus on DCS, uh, so direct current simulation. And so the picture here is just kind of our, our nice little model where this is a traditional TDCS setup. We have two pretty large pads, right? You have an anode, which I've represented in red, and a cathode in blue. You think about how electricity works, right? We have to complete a circuit. So we all did those experiments as a kid where we put in a battery and we push a little lever down and we complete the circuit and the light bulb lights up and then you let it go and then you'd spend hours doing that, right? At least I did. So that's the same thing. So we put the current into the head via the anode. The anode introduces the electric current. Well, it's got to go somewhere, right? It comes out via the cathode. And so that cathode allows us to complete the circuit. Now, traditionally, um, well, so there's considerable evidence now suggesting that it's safe, it's well tolerated, that there are effective sham conditions, and I can elaborate on that. But going back to the the 50s um, and some, some formative work, the general idea has been that the anode is excitatory. So introducing the current, we're depolarizing the resting membrane and making firing more likely to occur. Whereas the cathode, we're um, hyperpolarizing, making firing less likely to occur. And so I kind of walk through that here where if we have our, our resting threshold or our resting state in neurons and you know, we, in order for an action potential to occur, it has to pass the, th- the threshold. What we're doing is pushing that resting state closer to the, the threshold in, when we do anode. And then when we do cathode, we're pushing it further away. So this is a nice, simple model. Anode excites, cathode inhibits, just as anything. It looks like the effects really depend on the cellular orientation relative to the current flow. So if we're passing it through a gyrus of the brain, the effects on one side of the gyrus could be different than the effects on the other side of the gyrus, and that's where the field is. So a lot unknown, and so if, if you think about Um, this it's an okay starting point because it's based on motor physiology that on average it tends to have this effect but then even going from one milliamps to two milliamps in the motor cortex we can see this excitatory flip in some people where at one milliamp a cathode is inhibitory on the motor cortex at two milliamps it's suddenly excitatory and just as excitatory as the anode so there's a lot of uncertainty and so for me that creates a real problem right because I want to know what on earth the cathode is doing. Is it inhibiting this area? If it is inhibiting this particular area, is it an area that I want to be inhibited in my participants? Or could there be negative ramifications? If it's excitatory, is it an area that I want it to be excitatory? And so that ambiguity has pushed me to do more of a high-definition TDCS, which I'll describe in a minute. And so this is a, Sue and colleagues in in Gasly's lab did this nice review, it's already probably two or three years old at this point, where at that time there were only 11 studies in Alzheimer's disease that used either TMS or TDCS. And they they collapsed across, as they do in meta-analyses, across paradigm and um, what they found was that there's a large effect size benefit to active stimulation. And even after controlling for multiple potential confounding factors, we're still seeing a very nice effect size of 0.78, which I think any of us would take for our treatment studies, right? Again, a lot of methodologic questions persist. And so if we step back to some of those real world problems that, that you know I've tried to, to base our work on, I'm gonna go through some of the, the spatial navigation, right? So this is something that, that really falls down with aging and further as disease processes um, take hold. So when we think about spatial navigation, we have two, very grossly speaking, different approaches that we could use. We could have an allocentric that relies on spatial processing and requires the use and formation of mental maps. We can then also have egocentric, which is much more rigid and it's response-based. So at this given point, I go left or I go right. These systems interact. So if I can just do an example, so if everybody, I would say close your eyes, but it's warm enough in here that I don't want anyone falling asleep. So if you just kind of pseudo close your eyes and you imagine going from your house to the grocery store, right? You probably have this clear um, map in your mind of, of the way that you take time and time and time again. But now let's say that a tree falls and suddenly your normal path is blocked and I want you to navigate there. I'm willing to bet that everybody was able to to take a step back, pause for a second, and think, okay, well, i got to go down 1st Street over to 6th, and then I can take Q over to to Main Street. So there you had two systems where you were using your egocentric, this very habit-based approach. When I first told you to go to the grocery store, you can probably get in there. You'll get to the grocery store and be like, oh, I don't really remember driving here, and yet I'm here safely. Whereas then, when I, I threw that roadblock in the way, you had to go back and reengage this allocentric processing. You had to have this mental map. You had to think flexibly. So these systems interact, but there's a lot of evidence suggesting that even during normal aging, people rely less on egocentric, or less on allocentric and more on egocentric. And so, for example, this is a, a really nice uh, study that came out, uh, I guess, about five years ago now that I like because the the researchers had healthy young and older adults start in a certain point of a Y maze. And there was a landmark, say, right here. And all they had to do was go left or go right in order to find the correct exit. And so across a series of trials, then people learned, given an an environment, I go right at this particular landmark in order to get out. Being the evil people researchers are, they switch the starting point. And so then what you could tell is, did people use this egocentric processing framework where, you know what, it's the same general environment, I just go right in here every time. If so, that's an egocentric, and they get to the wrong um, endpoint. If they use an allocentric, they're able to say, oh, usually I would go right, but things look different, so I gotta go left here. And then they get out of the maze. And what they found was that the young group tended to to be more 50-50. But look at what happens in the older group. And again, these are cognitively intact older adults where there's a huge bias toward egocentric processing. Other groups have done this across the lifespan. So children rely on more of the spatial or allocentric processing. This seems to, again, be roughly 50-50 in uh, young adulthood. And then by older adulthood, again, a very egocentric bias to the approach. And it's not that participants aren't, these older adults aren't perceiving the landmarks. They are. So you can see when um, given a virtual environment or an environment that they have to navigate and asked to then recall the landmarks that they encountered, older adults were just as as able as young adults to recall those. They could even remember the order in which they encountered the landmarks just as well as the healthy young did. What they couldn't do is remember where they were. So that spatial information dropped out Okay? And so that's where the, the big problem was. So what we did, again, was design across a series of, of studies that we're still working to perfect um, the paradigm, but I think that they're, they're looking pretty good. We developed both allocentric and egocentric tasks. And I'll, I'll just take the liberty of showing you a couple of videos to give you a, a quick sense of, of how we're doing it. The idea here is that in the egocentric task... Again, what I want people to do is focus on, do do I turn left, do I turn right? And I tell them, don't pay any attention to the, the layout of the map. Every map like this is exactly the same. We've changed the pictures, so here you can see a beautiful beach. Your job is to pay attention to do I go left or do I go right? Whereas in the Allocentric, what we do is take them on each different functional run, a different path through the environment. So they're seeing all of the same landmarks three or four times, but they're never coming at it from the exact same approach. And so that way we could try and bias their processing toward more of an egocentric or more of an allocentric. And here, they're told don't even try and remember if you go left or right, because you're never gonna see it the same direction again. What we want you to do is remember the spatial relationship between these landmarks and develop a mental map. And so to give you an idea, of how we're perhaps not the nicest people. Okay, so this is an example of the egocentric, where you have this beautiful beach. Isn't it relaxing? And then, okay, so you just have to remember I go right. And so then we go down to the hallway. And now I go left. Right? And so this continues on until I think we had six or seven turns um, in each block that we used in the scanner. So again, same. We have a grocery store that I refer to as a grocery store from hell because you turn and it's exact same intersection every single time, and you know so you, you feel like you're kind of trapped in there. But this was kind of nice and scenic. So that gives you an idea of the egocentric. Now the allocentric. Again, this is an example where we have uh, kind of going through. So we have beautiful art gallery. Kind of looking around. Okay, and so the job is, again, to pay attention to these landmarks and remember the spatial relationship. We have our disengaged sales rep. And so on, you get the idea, okay. So we have these different um, paradigms, these different environments that we then show to, to participants in the scanner. And let's hope that it starts at the same point, yep. Okay, so then when we compare allocentric relative to egocentric, we can see that there's greater reliance on the parietal cortex, the spatial processing areas that again, we know decline with age, And that, um, you know, whether it's a pattern of bold signal or remember, I, I just said older adults couldn't remember the spatial relationship of the landmarks, but they could remember the landmarks. So, allocentric engage these areas more and also engage the hippocampus more bilaterally, right? So, we have an effective paradigm that we can then use in older adults and those with MCI. So, again, what can we do? Well, here, um, we took this paradigm and we had 22 older adults and, and so literally I'm showing you data that are fresh off of out of our processors. Um, there are some additional analyses that we're running now to, to look at PPI and see if there are relationships between the, the correlated patterns of uh, within the targeted brain region, and then probably some Granger causality. Um, so I'm just showing you the very basic results at this point. But we had 22 healthy older adults and 20 MCI patients, so we had double-blind randomized trial with uh, where they were uh, received one active session and one sham session. This was counterbalanced, so an equal number of people got sham first and um, active stimulation first and second. So again, very tightly controlled. We took the same paradigm because we know that it engaged the parietal cortex bilaterally. And so you remember I I mentioned that TDCS in general, um, well, and actually then in this larger sample, um, we did see again that bilateral parietal activation during egos or allocentric processing. Now, remember I mentioned that the large pad-based approach to tDCS, where we slap two big pads that are about 35 centimeters of total area, and we put them at different points on the head. This high-definition approach gives us more control over where the current goes, and the spatial distribution of the current and it even has ramifications on the the intensity of the current that's delivered but this center electrode in this case was our anode so again we're injecting two milliamps of current into the head via this one focal anode this one focal electrode we then have divided the cathode into four and so theoretically and you can see these kind of current flow maps that come out from these finite element models But what we can see is that from the center electrode, current is kind of going out and being distributed among these four cathodes. So this has two nice effects that we can then more or less target, our design here was meant to really target the right parietal cortex. And each of these cathodes only got roughly a half a milliamp of current, which is a pretty weak amount of current, right? So if we think about inhibitory, current uh, taking effect at somewhere around one milliamp, we're hopefully sub-threshold. So we're able to sidestep some of those issues that I mentioned earlier about not knowing what the cathode is doing. So we've spaced them them out to where even if they are are having some mild inhibitory effects, it's probably unlikely that they're going to substantially manifest in anything that would confound us. So these models certainly suggest that we were in fact targeting the right. You can see that the left maybe has a little spillage from some of these midline electrodes here, but overall, not much going in the left. And what we can see is that when we looked at the main effect of session, so active stimulation relative to sham resulted in increased bold signal only in the right parietal cortex. Taking the same ROI from the left, no difference. And so this is from healthy older adults. So the healthy older adults show that very focal effect that we wanted them to have in the the targeted right superior parietal lobule. And the magnitude of the bold signal improvement was pretty nicely related to how much behavioral improvement they showed. But again I mentioned some of that variability these folks are are the ones who are really interesting. Why did they get worse? Was it inhibitory for them? Did we disrupt their processing? And so those are some of the questions that we're gonna be chasing after. But overall The amount of current delivered there seemed to have a a nice positive relationship with how much um, bold signal, um, or how much behavioral change people gained from the, the one session. Now, when we look at the MCI patients, again, we see this nice local focal effect in healthy older adults. MCI patients, there was no such effect. So they both compared during the sham session again and the active session, healthy older adults showed that improvement. MCI patients did not. There was no change for the MCI patients. And so that, that's really interesting to think about. Again, there's a lot of atrophy, um, disease processes presumably affecting the parietal cortex. And so what's really interesting is then that we showed this restorative effect though in the hippocampus of the MCI patients. So you can see that kind of this light um, green and this blue are during the sham sessions. So you can see both left and right hippocampus MCI patients showed reduced hippocampal activation during the sham session. But when we applied active, even though we didn't get focal effect, we did see a restorative effect in the hippocampus bilaterally of these MCI patients. So this raises some interesting questions about why. And and I think that's where some of the connectivity analyses are going to be really important for us to to chase after. So, sorry. Great question. So TDCS was done for 20 minutes at 2 milliamps. We then raced people into the scanner. So our average time, I think our mean was 18 minutes from the time that um, they finished stimulation until the resting state scan. We then tried to target um, the the three functional runs so that the middle run occurred 30 minutes post, and that's again extrapolating from motor literature with HD suggesting that the peak effect in the motor cortex from HD is at 30 minutes post-stimulation. So that's when that motor-evoked potential showed the most significant change. So we tried to to capitalize on that peak spot, but you're right, we may not have optimized when we measured. So
0: when they're doing TDCS, are they
1: the or- So no, they're not doing, um, and so that's another good point. We measured offline effects because there are ways of doing TDCS in the scanner, but then you have to deal with a lot of physiologic artifact, um, a lot of uh, signal artifact. Um, and that wasn't something that, especially when I got to U of M and I started putting these IRBs through, the, the IRBs weren't ready to even go there. I think that they're ready now. We have a, a couple of additional studies that give us more flexibility. But my other problem is that because this is sub-threshold in nature, if we're scanning somebody and say that I, I start the task during the first minute of stimulation and stimulation goes 20 minutes and the task goes that whole time, I'm pretty sure what we're measuring at the 20 minute is nowhere near what we're measuring at the first minute or the final five minutes and the first five minutes. So that's not well mapped out at all in the TDCS literature. And so I think that that, that's a, a great point that you're getting at is we may not have optimized when we collected the data because we had to infer from motor literature that of healthy young individuals So there are a lot of questions there. Um, And so there may have been more, uh, if we had measured earlier, maybe we would have seen local effects. But then here we are seeing that even at uh, roughly 30 minutes post-stimulation, the MCI patients are showing increased hippocampal activation in task-relevant areas. And it's, again, double-blind RCT, so there's no evidence at all that patients knew what um, condition they were in. Chance level, no differences in um, accuracy for saying that they got sham or active, so pretty tightly controlled. So again, I think there are a lot of uh, things we don't know, but it's it's interesting to then think about the why um, we're seeing these differences as a result of these uh, a cognitive phenotype in this case. So again, it may TDCS may hold promise in older adults. It appears. Um, most beneficial when targeting these brain regions that are associated with the underlying task. And so we were talking earlier about some, um, the the concept of functional targeting and trying to use cognitive or motor tasks to engage the targeted brain area and or network as a way of really reinforcing that network and strengthening it. Um, But again, we we also touched on um, a lot of the methodologic issues that I'm happy to go into in a lot of detail um, for those of you who'd be interested. So where are we going um, with this? So we have uh, this trial that has, uh, has about two years left where we're doing combined strategy training and TDCS in patients with MCI. And so it's a double-blind bl- double RCT um, over the left ventral prefrontal. We have two to three years left depending on enrollment. And so you can see, again, we're using this high-definition approach and this is what the models tell us. And we're, again, trying to target that lateral frontal area that I hit in the first half of the talk. Um, okay, how's everybody holding up? Because I can just give you a, a, a very quick case example about how we're then trying to translate some of this. Everybody in? Okay, great. So, again, as we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the, the challenges um, with TDCS and, and even the IRB not being entirely comfortable just because it wasn't really used when I got there. So what I've done is created an IRB that is pretty broad ranging that lets me have up to 70 treatment sessions at up to four milliamps and I can do a combination of cognitive and or brain stimulation within multiple MRIs. And so the idea here that I, I um, developed this to do is really let me identify individual variability and try and develop more of a, a truly translational research approach to enhancing functioning in an area that a patient may complain of. So in this case, we had an 80-year-old right-handed Caucasian male with a seven-year history of cognitive decline, um, most notable for word finding, the names of both people and objects, um, a lot of paraphasic errors, and his family complained of memory problems. He had a history of right MCA occlusion that was successfully treated, and he was then asymptomatic, he returned to baseline, that happened about a year or two prior to when I first saw him clinically. So the patient um, met clear criteria for semantic dementia, right? So, um, and just as we would expect with semantic dementia, you can see the, the marked atrophy. I mean, global atrophy, but if you look at the lateral temporal cortex and the medial temporal cortex, really profound. Um, and this is characteristic of semantic d- dementia, so, which is a, a subtype of frontotemporal. Uh, Dementia. So, losing the ability to name objects and have that semantic meaning attached to the objects is is characteristic. But in talking with he and his wife, that was one of the things that they reported as being extremely frustrating because he would try and communicate, like, oh, could you hand me the, um, uh, uh," and not being able to name something as simple as a bottle was. Terribly distressing and functionally debilitating, uh, contributing to the deficits on top of everything else. And he got very frustrated, and so his wife was saying that he's he's less engaged now. So, one of the problems I don't know if you guys have it here, but in Michigan, nobody sticks. Uh, older adults love to winter in Florida and in southern states. So we had a two-week window, a period to work with them before they migrated. <laughs> so what we did was um, obtained some baseline data, which uh, again, unfortunately I don't have it in a state that I'd I'd feel comfortable showing. There are some interesting differences that I can allude to, but we're we're kind of refining the processing of that. But at baseline we had him do object naming. So we chose several hundred objects and asked him to name them. And we gave him three exemplars of each object so that we could make sure it just wasn't a, a, a problem one time. So he had to not be able to name three of those exemplars of each object. We then identified 60 total objects, that uh, or 120 total objects, that we divided into two groups that uh, an MD-PhD student I had did a wonderful job matching on. Any variable that you could think of, he matched them. Um, And so we then, in week one, had him learn those objects using um, subtracting cues training that I'll, I'll walk through in a second, and we gave him sham. HGTDCS over the, the left lateral temporal cortex here because again we know that functionally this area is involved in object naming um, and it, it is a disease relevant area so I showed you the atrophy in that that area so week one was sham we kept him blinded we kept our study team blinded and so I had different study team members go in and do the stimulation uh, they started the simulator blocked it off and after 20 minutes it shuts off and then the MD-PhD student worked with him with the subtracting cues training. And so by the end of the first week, he had learned 60 items. Second week, same thing, except this time we gave him three milliamps of stimulation over this lateral temporal area combined with the subtracting cues training. Okay, again, everybody was blinded. And so the subtracting cues training, again, 60 objects each week that he couldn't name at baseline. We had three exemplars to enhance the generalization two well-matched lists, like I said, and the subtracting Q method, we start out showing an object, and literally the name of it is written right underneath. So he could still read relatively well, and so he was able to say, oh, that's a spoon. So each time he gave us the correct answer, we subtracted a letter, and it showed just like this. And so he would say, oh, that's a spoon. Great, so we subtract another letter. Until he was able to eventually name three in a row correct, or he maxed out at 20 trials. Okay, so we had to set a, a threshold somewhere, and we randomly chose 20 trials. If he gave the incorrect name or he didn't name it, we then introduced letters until he could successfully name it. Okay, so in that way, we were able to kind of modulate and keep his success pretty high. We evaluated his ability to name the stimuli 20 minutes after the, least, after the last trial in each session, um, 24 hours, so at the start of the next session, and again at the end of the week after all five sessions. So we have these three different recall trials which the number of stimuli obviously differs a little bit because he learned um, what, 12 stimuli a day on each of five days. So when we look at active and sham, if we just measured outcome at 20 minutes, there's no difference, right? So I think there are two things here. So TDCS didn't have any additive, additive, additive effect But the subtracting Q training was ridiculously successful, right? So again, this is a patient who wasn't able to name any of these items, and now, after a fairly brief intervention, is doing much better. But as that delay increased, we're seeing better retention when it was paired with active stimulation. And so again, just given the constraints that we were under, we couldn't bring them in for a longer-term follow-up. I would have loved to have done a lot more Um, But then when we broke it down, again, going further into the, the functional neuroanatomy, if objects were able to be manipulated, that's really where we saw the bang for the buck, which is also fairly consistent with the area that we were generally targeted, that we were targeting. So... Again, there are a lot of questions. I would want to see this replicated. We're, um, you know, as part of the center, um, I have access to a lot of these uh, individuals now, and so we're um, kind of chasing after funds to, to be able to expand what we're doing here. But this is actually, I think, very encouraging proof of principle that suggests that adds to some of the methodologic questions of when do we measure? Because if we just did what most in the, the cognitive neuroscience literature do and kind of look for one hit wonder of of Right now, what effect does it have? We would have missed this entirely. And I, I would be very curious to see, okay, what happened if we brought them back a week later? What did retention look like? Um, and again, just because of the nature of it, we weren't able to. Um, so I think there's a lot of details that we need to really work out. But the bottom line for everything in general is just that fMRI may help us understand why memory is impaired in these individuals. The non-pharmacologic approaches may be able to help us re-engage task-relevant brain areas. And it's not a cure, but it could have a significant impact on their everyday functioning and quality of life. And I think at the end of the day, if if that's what my career ended up doing, I'd be very pleased with that. So I want to acknowledge all of my uh, colleagues and and lab members, collaborators, um, and and certainly the Alzheimer's Disease Center. So thank you.
0: To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.